Welcome into this week's edition of Please Bear With Me. My name's Scotty. It's so great to be talking to you once again. Wow, what a game this past Saturday. What a showing. And I know it was a loss, and I know a lot of fans don't want to take away moral victories. I know a victory certainly would have been better than taking the L in Austin, but you heard me say last week I thought there was no chance and that Texas was just going to kind of run us through the ringer. Man, was I wrong. Man, was I wrong. Number one, it was not a shootout like I predicted, but it was a defensive battle, which was thoroughly entertaining to watch. I was surprised with how much I enjoyed watching that from Baylor and UT. But also, Baylor's defense being able to hang in a defensive battle, not giving up any of those big explosive plays, so impressive. And if you want my full crazy reaction from Saturday, I published an article back on Sunday on Bears Illustrated titled, I Was Wrong, Yesterday Changes Everything. And basically, I've got to confess, and I haven't said all of it on the podcast, I've tried to keep most of my most out there opinions off the podcast. I've tried to be fairly reasonable. And, you know, part of why I do this podcast is to let other people talk. I mean, let's be honest, getting guests on today, we've got John Morris, voice of the Baylor Bears. I'm going to let him talk. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to just say a lot. I know a lot of you just do not care what I have to say, but I have held the opinion probably faintly since late last season and definitely as the off season progressed this year, I've been very, very hard on Matt Rule. Because when Matt Rule was hired, you know, he sold us with the coach speak, right? But he sold us specifically with Baylor conditioned coach speak. So he talked about hearing a call from God that brought him to Baylor instead of sending him to Eugene, Oregon. I believe him. I'm not saying the guy's a liar, but that caters to the Baylor fan base very well, right? And he talked a lot about building up the program, about improving character and the reputation, creating great men on and off the field. All good things, all things I believe in, all things that for the most part I believe he's doing. The one thing he said he would do here was compete for championships. And of course, as the last coaching staff proved, You can indeed win championships at Baylor, right? There was this perception for a long time that Baylor was just not a school that would ever be able to compete for championships because of its size, because of its Christian affiliations, Baptist affiliations, because of perhaps not the same kind of just spending money that programs like Texas and Texas A&M have in the same state, you know, both only 90 miles from campus. But we now know that Baylor is capable of recruiting the top recruits and competing for championships and playing really, really well in this conference. And so when Matt Rule said, we're going to compete for championships, I believed him, even though I didn't buy into his style of football. I mean, let's be honest. The Art Bryles score 60 points a game style of football is usually more fun to watch. And it worked for us for you know a few years there where we were just really good competing for Big 12 championships two different years legitimately in the national championship conversation until the very bitter end. And that first season, y'all, it was just rough. It was just rough. Winning one game in a season really demoralizes you as a fan. And especially because that was the first season I did this podcast, I was trying to cover it and pay really close attention every week. And I just couldn't. Oh, I just couldn't. It was brutal. 
watching us lose all those games, especially because so many of them were tight and blown by seemingly silly mistakes. And, you know, I, I tried to hang with Matt Rule, and then I heard that he was being interviewed to be the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts, and I kind of lost my mind. That was just outrageous to me. I, I want someone who's loyal to Baylor. I want somebody who's true to their word, and Matt Rule has said he's here to turn the program around, and he signed a seven-year deal, and I want him here. And so that really left a bad taste in my mouth. And then all off season and into the first part of this season, he's just been so consistent in his coach speak, in his lingo, and it's almost felt fake at times, right? Like, like is that fair? Maybe it's not fair, but it's almost felt fake at times of him saying, we're going to be a tough team. We're going to be a championship team. We, Our guys just have to buy in. And then this season started rough. Yes, we beat ACU, but we struggled against UTSA. We looked like trash for half the game against Duke. Absolute trash. Even against Kansas State, which was a big win and a great, you know, end of the game, let's let's gut it out and finish type win. Giving up all those big play touchdowns, it's I was at a place where I was like, man, you know, we're a year and a half into this Matt Rule experiment. And the two problems that have existed since the Liberty game, poor offensive line play and giving up huge plays on defense remain halfway through year two. And I just could not stand it. And I stopped believing in the process at some point. I stopped believing in a physical brand of football. I wanted the the spread them out, shoot the ball down the field, run the zone running plays right up the gut. You know, you've heard me say so many times on this podcast, there's no way I want Art Bryles back. The Art Bryles truthers are, are crazy. We can't take him back. We shouldn't bring him back. He should have been fired. So I'm not saying that, but I am saying I miss that style of football. And this past Saturday, man, I just got to give the coaching staff and the players a world of credit. What a game. What a game. And it was a brutal, drag it out, chippy, players getting in fist fights. You know, as seems to happen every time we play Texas, right? But man, they played well. Man, they played well. And I'm not going to blame the game on the refs, but you got to feel like if there's one call that's called correctly rather than egregiously incorrectly that Baylor wins that game, right? Man, we played well. The game plan looked good. The defense didn't give up any big plays. They finally looked like they knew what they were doing from the linebackers to the safeties to all the areas where they've struggled. I think something clicked, man. I think a light bulb just snapped on for that team. It was impressive. I got to give him a world of credit. And so that was my biggest reaction to the game in Austin this past Saturday was something clicked. And I, in that 60 minutes of game time, went from really having lost a lot of faith and a lot of leeway and grace for Matt Rule. It all came flooding back, man. This thing could work. This little let's make a physical NFL slash multiple scheme team could work. It just might. And as I said in the article, and you should go read it, it's on Bears Illustrated, maybe we don't make a bowl game this year. 
Maybe we don't win a Big 12 championship in the next three or four years. But for the first time in what feels like a long time, I feel like we just might. I feel like we just might be able to reach those heights. So great job by everyone involved. Congratulations to Coach Rule on a job well done to this point. I was dead wrong. I'm on the bandwagon. Let's go. Let's see what happens by the end of year three, year four. Let's get the rest of Matt Rule's recruits in here. I'm really, really excited to see what this team is going to be able to do. And I'm really excited to see how the rest of this season plays out. It's going to be fun. We'll see what happens. Let me tell you, last season for the very first episode of this podcast, I got to interview a hero of mine, in some ways an idol of mine, somebody I've looked up to since I was a little kid, somebody I've wanted to be for most of my life, and that is John Morris, who is the voice of the Baylor Bears. I've, I've said for a long time, if there's any job that could take me out of my current career path of going into the Christian ministry and put me on another path, it would be if I could have his job, right, and call Baylor football and basketball games. What a guy. What a great career. And John, the thing about John is he is always so gracious. If you know John, if you've ever talked to him, he is the most kind and gracious and humble guy. I mean, unbelievable. Really embodies, I think, what Baylor University wants to stand for and what, frankly, if I may be so bold for a second, I think he really embodies what a Christ follower should stand for. He's just a fantastic dude. He is the best in the biz as far as calling football games play-by-play. There isn't anyone I'd rather listen to He is right up there with the Brad Shams, right up there with the Al Michaels. He's that good. You know him. You love him. He was cool enough to sit down with me once again for this season of Please Bear With Me. So we sat down this week and had a conversation about how the Bears have played so far. Some of you sent in questions on Twitter, which I asked him as well. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with voice of the Baylor Bears, John Morris. Where do we begin? (laughs) My biggest question is, where is the difference this season? Hmm. Because it's not often you see a team go from one win to four mm-hmm. and have the potential to win at least a few more. Mm-hmm. Where, where did the jump happen? I think it is It's what you would like to see, what you would hope to see. When you hire a new coach, there's going to be, more often than not, a transition year. And we definitely went through that last year because there were huge changes. You know, the offense changed, the defense changed, and and we were down on players, you know, just numbers of players. So I think there's just naturally that transition season. But then what you hope to see is a pretty good jump improvement from year one to year two after a new coach is hired. And I think we're seeing that right now also. I think uh, you hear Coach Rule talk about the process, and some people don't like to hear that, but it's absolutely true that it doesn't happen overnight. You have to go through the process. And to me, what that means is the process of you know getting what he wants from the players, getting the players to buy into that, which I think happened pretty quickly, but then getting the right players to run his system offensively and defensively. So it just takes a little bit of time, and they recruited really well. So I think this year we've got more good players, you know, more quality players. And you can see how many freshmen are playing, so they're really good also. So I think the short answer is it's just 
part of the process, and this team is just significantly better than they were a year ago. This is interesting to me. So last week, I tried to rank the five best quarterbacks of this decade. So from 10 to now. Okay. And it's surprisingly difficult. Uh. Probably doesn't surprise you because after one Robert Griffin III, you could do a whole number of things with the next four guys. How impressed have you been with Charlie Brewer? And how does he stack up to some of those guys? I know you're probably not going to play favorites. Right, right. How does he stack up to the other great guys we've had here? I try not to play favorites. You understand that. Uh, I like whoever's playing quarterback. I like whoever's playing right now. I like them all. Uh, Rob would probably be at the top of that list, you know, and Bryce Petty won two Big 12 championships. That's, you know, that's up there, uh, you know, with accomplishments, certainly by recent quarterbacks. But Charlie Brewer, I think he fits right in with this group. Uh, He's different. You know, he's different than Rob. He's different than Bryce. He's different than Nick Florence. He's different than Seth Russell, but he he brings uh, a winning attitude, you know, number one to the field. He's just a winner, man. He, he is a fighter, too. I think we saw that in Austin. He did a good job of controlling his emotions because that was big for him to go back and play against Texas. First time he'd ever played a game at that stadium, but he controlled it really, really well and had a good game. I mean, had a very solid game. So I think Charlie fits right in with the group of great quarterbacks we've had uh, this decade, and the best is probably still ahead of him. You know, he's got another two and a half years here at Baylor. If you had to uh, pick the two or three areas where Coach Rule and I know like guys like Evan Cooper and Fran Brown, mm-hmm. where they really need to hit the recruiting trail hard mm-hmm. this coming off season, based on what we've seen so far. Right. Where do you think they really need to try to stack up some good players? Uh, I would say in both lines, yes. and that, but that's always the case, you know. And that's not an indictment on the guys we have here now in the offensive or defensive lines. I think those are just the toughest positions to find, especially in the defensive line. And uh, so you always go for those, you know. If you can get quality guys in both lines, you just can't have too many good offensive or good defensive linemen. Uh, I think linebacker, we we you know could shore that position up and again that's not an indictment of the guys we have now but just could use more uh quality depth there at linebacker um and beyond that i mean just kind of cross the board recruiting for every position no other position really jumps out well we lose drew drew galitz so uh don't we have isaac power that's true isaac powers that's true the guy from colorado who during fall camp i remember he was booming it back there with punts so that's good to have there yes i think everyone sees charlie brewer now as the face right Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people know uh players that have been around for a while uh clay johnston jumps out in my head um, Denzel Mims jumps out in my head. Mm-hmm. Who are two or three guys? And I kind of asked you the same question last year, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious. Who fly under the radar? Mm-hmm. Who the average Baylor fan knows their name, and that's about it. Right. Who are really leading this team, motivating this team? Mm-hmm. Locker room guys. Who Who are two or three of those guys that? people may not just think of right off the top of their head. So after or in addition to Charlie and Clay Johnston, 
you know, I think our their two seniors, um, but they're veteran guys and their real leaders are the left side of our or the right side of our offensive line, Blake Blackmar and Patrick Lawrence. Those guys are real, real leaders, and it's great to have that veteran leadership on the offensive line. They've played together so much. You know that that side is really really good, and those guys, you know sort of quietly because they're offensive linemen. I mean, they're real leaders out there. So that would be two that I would think of. Um, Verkedrick Vaughn's in the secondary. You know, he's a guy that uh, I know know people know his name and know he's a sharp dresser and all that, but he's a real leader in the the locker room and out on the field as well and very, very competitive. So uh, he's one that maybe is under the radar a little bit. Here, I'll, I'll take you – we'll jump right into a couple of the questions I got on Twitter. Okay. Somebody asked – I really like this one – where outside of Waco mm-hmm. – and I might have asked you this last year too, but I do, I do not remember – where your favorite place to broadcast from is. Oh, yeah. And it, your dream broadcast mm. stadium or arena that you haven't done. Okay. Is this strictly football or any sport? Football, basketball, anything? Uh, You know, the the best places I miss going to Nebraska because I don't know if you've ever been to a game there, but those folks have a great reputation and it is very well deserved. I mean, they are great fans. And that place, you hear them talk about that stadium as being a sea of red, and it absolutely is. I don't know how they get everybody to wear red. Isn't it like it's the the second or third biggest? City right when the, in Nebraska. <laughs> That's right. When right. The fans are there. I think the third largest city in Nebraska, <laughs> behind Lincoln and Omaha, is Memorial Stadium. Yeah. So. That's really impressive. That was fun when we were going there on a regular basis. I miss going there. I miss going to Colorado also just because I love Colorado and the setting of Folsom Field up there. You know, at the foothills of the Rockies was really cool. Uh, And more often than not, we'd go in in the fall when the leaves were changing. So I miss going up there. So those are a couple. Actually, I miss going to A&M. Uh, which might sound strange, and some people might be surprised to hear that, but it was such a good rivalry for so long, and I miss that part of it. And that stadium, man, those people, you got to give them credit. Uh, the stadium literally sways when they saw Varsity's horns off, you know, during the game. And uh, it's just a great atmosphere there, and I haven't been since they've expanded it. So it's even bigger now, bigger than it was when we were going there regularly. Uh, those are three that come to mind as really good atmospheres on the road. Uh, we just got back from Austin where that stadium was expanded, and they had, what, 90, 90, 93,000, I think, the other day, and it's just huge. It's just massive, and that's really impressive. Otherwise, places I'd like to go, I mean, we've been to we've been to Michigan, and that was fun to see the big house. We've been to Notre Dame and played a game there in 98, and that was really fun. And then places like the Coliseum in Los Angeles. I mean, that was just these old historic venues and places. So those have been really fun. The place I'd like to go and do a game would be uh, Kentucky because I'm from Danville, Kentucky. And I went to a Baylor game when I was in school in 1978 and sat in the stands. 
and Baylor played Kentucky. So I'd like to go do a game there. That'd be fun. And then especially Rupp Arena for basketball. Yep. Well, that was my question. Yeah, my next that's question the one. Be, yeah, but you're talking basketball, not football, right? That's basketball yeah, uh, because uh, I grew up, you know, listening and watching Kentucky games and lived 30 miles south of Lexington. And we played UK a few years ago, but we had a basket, I mean, a football game the same date, so I couldn't go. And it was the game that Baylor beat Kentucky and ended their long home winning streak yes. in Rupp Arena, but I didn't get to go. So that's one I'd like to go back to and do that. And then Louisville also. I was born in Louisville, so if we could play at the KFC Yum Center against the Cardinals, that'd be fun. You know, the women seem to play Kentucky more regularly than the men do. Maybe you just need to swap one week and go do a women's game. (laughs) I did a women's game against Kentucky here. Uh When we played them here, I got to do that one on TV. So so that was fun. There you go. Here's one, two questions from Sarah. Okay. What's your advice for the best way to experience the game both live and when you can't be there? So I guess what? how do you prefer to experience a game when you can't be there? Me? Yeah. Or just any fan? She asked for advice. I want to know what what you like to do. Okay. So maybe both. And she says, do both involve listening to your broadcast while watching? <laughs> I don't know. That's personal preference. Some people, we appreciate people who make that work, you know, who want to watch on TV, and I can understand that. I think if people have the option, most often they're going to watch on TV. But I appreciate people who make it work to watch and then sync up so they can listen to us while they watch on TV. There's, there's ways, mechanisms to do that now. And, uh, and I hear from people all the time, you know, who say they are doing that. And so I appreciate that. Uh, the best way would be if you can't be there, that's what I would say is, uh, try to sync up our radio broadcast because you're going to get a radio Baylor perspective, you know, with the TV broadcast and watch it that way. Yep. This is probably my favorite question. Okay. And I'm, I'm very curious. You might've seen me retweet this one. What did you think about Jamison Houston's performance over the weekend? Nah. <laughs> Including his interception? Yes, sir. <laughs> that There's no way that wasn't an interception. Thank you. Yes. I mean, when we saw it at first, we thought, wow, that looks like a great catch. And then we saw the replay as they were reviewing it. And we said, oh, this is going to be overturned because we had no doubt that it was right. an interception. But it was not. They saw something that we didn't see or we saw something that they didn't see. But uh, he played really well. We, we got the word, you know, through the week and on Saturday that he was going to have a larger role in this game and play more and he did and he did really well uh, including what we thought sure looked like an interception to us. Somebody asked how impressed have you been with Jalen Hurd who is now only approximately 300 yards from a thousand receiving right coming and making that transition from running back. Jalen Hurd is is just great to watch. It was fun to watch him last season when he was here sitting out and not eligible, and he worked so hard. You know, it was a new position for him moving from running back to receiver, and he worked really hard at it. But he was on the scout team, and he handled that very humbly and knew that's that's what he had to do. Uh, I can remember some weight work that they did with the whole team, and he was leading the way. And in, in sprints and things, he was leading the way. So really impressive how hard he worked when he was sitting out last year year and I couldn't wait to see him get 
on the field in games this year, and he's been really good. I mean, and I, I still think I still think he's sort of learning the position. I think he can be yeah. better and will be better the more he plays receiver. Um, when we put him in the backfield, uh, he looks very natural <laughs> running the ball. I mean, you can tell he's got a lot of experience as a running back, and that's a good weapon to have uh, at their disposal, you know, and use him whenever they need to. But as a receiver, I think he's still learning the position. He's got good hands. It's great to see him get the ball and, and see how many yards after the catch he can make. So I'm glad we've got him. That was a great pickup to get him this year. And I think he, uh, I think he's going to be a pro. I think he's going to play in the pros. And I think the last half of this season, he's going to do some really, really amazing things. Have you? I know there's been a lot of scouts uh, coming to the last few games. At least I've seen tweets. Uh-huh. These these six NFL teams are here. Are any of them going to try to talk him into getting back, putting on weight, and getting in the backfield? I know he doesn't want to yeah, have I it. Know. I know that's not that's not his his thought or right. his, his wish, but. I see him carry that ball, and I'm like, bro. He's good, isn't he? Yes, he is. He's really good. Yes, he is. I don't know. I don't know what the scouts would look at. I think he made the switch because I think he thought he had a better chance mm-hmm. to play in the NFL as a receiver more than a running back or maybe to have both those you know, characteristics. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why he made the switch, but I don't know if scouts would look at him and say, you could be a really good running back, or uh, if they would value him more maybe as a receiver. Maybe that's maybe that's it. I mean, he's shown he can do both or either, and uh, I don't know. I couldn't I couldn't speak for the scouts what they would Perfect. think. My dad actually wants to know, mm-hmm. um, and and I think again, I think we might have hit. I know I remember last year we talked about how Frank Fallon kind of just grabbed you and pulled <laughs> you into this position and put you in this role. But what is something important you learned from him, and what is your favorite, maybe something funny, uh, a Fallon story? Oh, yeah, sure. I love talking about Frank Fallon. I love Frank, and it was the greatest learning experience of my life, my professional life, you know, working with him. Uh, when, I came to, when I came to Baylor from Kentucky, mm-hmm. and I started in 1977, I didn't know much about the history. I knew 74 Cotton Bowl. I knew that and didn't know much, but I knew that I wanted to meet uh, Grant Taft, New Coach Taft's name, had never met him, and I knew I wanted to meet Frank Fallon because I grew up in Kentucky listening to Kaywood Ledford, who was their legend, and I knew Frank was the the equivalent of that here at Baylor. So uh, it was great when I got to, to meet him and be around him and then got to work with him. I started doing games with Frank football in 1987. And just to sit with him and and just soak it all up. He was such a professional. He was such a gentleman. He was such a great representative of Baylor. He was so well-respected. You know, he did Southwest Conference basketball TV games for 25 years. So here's the Baylor guy, quite clearly the Baylor guy, going in and doing games, you know, Arkansas and A&M. But he's respected enough that the coaches would welcome him in there to do that. So just so well-respected. And I just love that learning experience working with him and then to follow him to succeed him and I never make the mistake of saying replace Frank Fallon because nobody replaces Frank Fallon but to succeed him was just a real honor and it's something I think about a lot Pat and I talk about it a lot Pat Nunley because he worked with Frank for a long time and we just uh, both have so much respect for him that uh, whatever we do hopefully reflects positively on him. 
our favorite story, favorite story about Frank is we were playing Arkansas one year, and maybe I've told you this already, but it was the last year we played Arkansas before they left Southwest Conference for the SEC, and it, it was a night game in Fayetteville, and they didn't have lights there, so they brought in these portable lights, and they weren't real good, so there were some weird shadows on the field. And there was one play where Arkansas running back uh, kind of breaks free and he's running for the end zone and Frank makes the call. He's looking through his binoculars, you know, and I don't remember the guy's name, but he said, breaks loose, 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown Arkansas. And there's an anteater on the field, you know, just all in one voice. And and I looked around to Craig Harper, our engineer, and we're looking at each other and we're looking for an anteater on the field. Where'd that come from? And uh, turned out it was the Arkansas helmet, you know, the little motorized helmet that they run out there after touchdowns. <laughs> and Frank took that as an anteater for some reason. But you know what? If Frank Fallon says it, he says it with such authority <laughs> that it's hard to argue that it wasn't an anteater on the field. And so we laughed about it on the you air after that. that story. Really? That's hysterical. That's one of our favorite ones. Uh, Craig loves that story too. And he laughed about it afterward. He said, well, I don't know, the shadow just made it look like it had a snout. It looked like it was an anteater. Of all the things <laughs> an you anteater. mistake that yeah, for. In Fayetteville, Arkansas. In Fayetteville, Arkansas. <laughs> So that's an all-timer from Frank. That's hilarious. You said something just now that I guess shouldn't surprise me, but it kind of does. Do you use binoculars? How often do yeah. you? So, yes, I do. And uh, it's sort of, you know, it used to be that, that football jerseys numbers were very distinct. Like, I give Texas credit. Their, their numbers are big, and they are distinct, and they're easy to see. But you see other schools that have – a black jersey and a gold numeral and it just doesn't you know doesn't show up as well so a lot of times uh, I, I found these binoculars and I don't know who I learned this from but they're like Bushnell wide range uh, wide field of vision binoculars so if I look through those you can see 40 or 50 yards of the field down there it's not look, like looking through the old binoculars which were you know good for magnifying a small area of the field. These are a large part. I don't think I could do it as much without these binoculars, but these are really good. The wide range of field and uh, don't look through there all the time, but kind of depend on where we are. And now some places we're down in the end zone and sometimes beyond the end zone. zone? (laughs) TCU does. Of course. Oh my goodness. Why am I not surprised? TCU radio booth is beyond the end zone and Cowboy Stadium is but they've got the best replay monitor in the world yes. with that video board. So if you miss anything, you can always glance up there. Uh, and there are other places where it's just inching more and more, where they sell the good seats, you know, or make sweets out of them and push the media into the corners. One of the good things about McLean Stadium is our broadcast booths, home radio, visiting radio, and TV are great right on the 50-yard line. Right, yeah. How fun was it? I don't have the perspective you have when mm-hmm. TCU jumped back into the conference. Mm-hmm. We played them several times non-conference right. as I was as I was growing up, and and when they were still in the Mountain West, and so I, I always was like, oh yeah, TCU, whatever. And then as soon as they jumped back in, you know, you you mentioned Baylor A and M rivalry earlier. That wasn't a true rivalry because because they they, I think they shrugged and yeah. and saw us as the little guy. Yeah, probably so. TCU has some disdain for I know the way the Big 12 conference <laughs> formed and we're similar in size uh the disciples of Christ school and the Baptist however you want to frame it that's a real rivalry how yeah. 
how rewarding was it for you to watch them come back into the conference after all the time in the Southwest and then being gone for a while? Right. What was that like? Well, it just made too much sense for it not to happen. You know, if the Big 12 was looking for a school to add, uh, I, I was I was glad to see TCU, or, TCU and Baylor get back together in the same league. It was odd for all those years when TCU was wandering around three or four or five different conferences. And, and TCU, to be honest, they, they always felt like, and probably still do, that Baylor got their spot in the Big 12 initially. They said, you know, if Baylor hadn't had the help in Austin that we had, that TCU would have been in the Big 12 from the get-go. So e- even at that, it, it's a good rivalry. It's a long-standing rivalry. And 61-58 just kind of stokes the fire, you know, so so that's fun. But uh, I, I think it's great. It makes too much sense not to be in the same league as close as they are proximity-wise, you know, and uh, and where we are, and, and then given the history between the two schools also. Yeah. Tell me this, and you may not know this very well. I don't know how much you've interacted with this person, but I know a lot of Baylor fans will be curious what you think. What is Gary Patterson like off the field? <laughs> I don't know him that well off the field. I mean, there's a few times when, like at Big 12 Media Days or something like that, that, I, that I'll run into him. But I think, and he kind of said this at Big 12 Media Days this year, that there's two people. There's, uh, there's Gary uh, and that's the off-season person. And then there's Coach P, who is the in-season Gary Patterson. And I think most coaches are like that. You know, the coaches that I've worked with and been around here at Baylor, they they are different people in-season compared to out-of-season just because they're more relaxed. They've got more time on their hands usually. I mean, they're busy recruiting, but it's just different off-season compared to uh, in your if, if you're in the midst of your season. So, I, I don't know that much. Brian Estridge is a good friend of mine who does the TCU games. He loves Coach Patterson, you know, and he loves Gary. <laughs> he loves them both. So uh, that's that's good endorsement right there. And it's just, and I couldn't add to that. So because I don't really know him that well away from the field. Mm-hmm. Your radio show here got changed up since we talked to the first thing in the morning. Yeah. How's that been? It's been good, actually. I wasn't sure. They were shuffling in the lineup and asked me first about doing an hour at noon. And I said, I just can't do that. I I know I'd have so many conflicts, luncheons and things like that. I said, if that's the only option, I'll just bow out. And they said, no, how about uh, 9 a.m.? And I said, yeah, maybe. Let's try it. And the more I'm into it, the more I like it, really, because I didn't realize when it was at 2 o'clock, that's in the middle of the afternoon, I'd have to stop everything I'm doing, do the show, I mean, get ready, do the show, and then come back and try to get going again after that. And it was really intrusive. I didn't realize it because I did that for 10 years. And But now it's 9 a.m. For the most part, I usually go there from home uh, and then after the hour come to work after that. So I really like it a lot better. And uh, some people, I hear from some people who say, I can't listen anymore because you're on a different time. And some say, well, I can listen more now because it's at 9 a.m. So, But I like it. I think it's really good. The guy I'm working with, Chris Allman, I really like him. So I, to me, it's been a win. Who's your favorite? This is just a passion for me. Uh-huh. I, I listen to sports talk radio. Uh-huh. all the, That's all I listen to uh-huh. all day, all the time. Who's your favorite national Sports talk radio guy. Yeah, uh, I would say uh, Dan Patrick probably. I really like him, and he does a good job of talking sports. But then they talk a little bit of you know 
other things also. It's not just X's and O's, you know, nuts and bolts sports the whole time. And I like Dan because he is very smooth and very fluid, and um, um, so he would be the main one that I would say. No, he's good. Yeah. Let's use your use your analysis here. Uh, we've got a bye week, yes. so that's nice. And I know there's players that are excited for the rest, and coaches are excited for. I know they're not taking a break, but, right? But, right. You know, it is it is a little bit of a of a time to just take a breath. What needs to happen between now and next Thursday night if Baylor has any shot at winning in Morgantown? Because Morgantown's hard. Mm-hmm. They, they play good at home, right? And they're going to come in angry yeah. after having been upset in Ames, as, as top 10 teams often are. Yeah. Um, what does this team have to do to, to go in there and maybe steal a win? I think just continue the work that they've been doing. You know, I think it's the the results are really showing themselves uh, with how well Baylor played, how how well this team has improved from the loss to Duke to you know now where they are. The loss in Austin, uh, even though that was a loss, there were a lot of good signs there. They cut down on the uh, big plays they gave up to Texas, which was a big part of that game staying close on Saturday. But I just think they're they're doing things the right way. They're working hard, and they just need to keep doing that. And it's kind of nice to have a little extra time to prepare for that game. Of course, West Virginia does also. But it's nice to get that breather and get some guys healed up and then go at it full speed, you know, for the last five games of the year, starting with West Virginia. So nothing nothing dramatic that I would say needs to change or needs to happen. It's just keep doing what they've been doing, and, uh, and they're going to get some big wins down the stretch. Let's say we get bowl eligible. Uh-huh. Where's your dream place to go broadcast a bowl game from? Oh, man, I don't know. Uh, they're all good. San Diego was great for the yeah. Holiday Bowl. Yeah. My family got to go on that, so that's – to me, it's kind of the the key is does my family get to go, you know, because that's around the holidays, and if they can go and we can go to a place and experience it together, that's really cool. And the Holiday Bowl was one of those, so that was really really fun. Uh, I'd go back there any. I'd go to San Diego <laughs> anytime. So there's a lot of good ones. Uh, you know, the uh, Tempe was great just being out there for the Fiesta Bowl. But there's a lot of good places. Uh, I mean, last year, not last year, but two years ago, the Cactus Bowl was fun also. It was a short trip. We weren't out there that ver- that long, but it was a neat area and fun to go to. A big thank you to John Morris for coming on the podcast this week. He is great. Those stories are fantastic. I just love hearing about his experience and hearing his perspective on Baylor football. He watches those games closer than any of us do. I mean, he's calling it as it happens. So his insight is always great. Thanks again, John. So we're going through a series right now where every week I am ranking the top five Baylor football players of this decade, so 2010 to present, at their position. So last week, I did quarterbacks. And if you'll remember, I ranked them Robert Griffin number one, followed by Nick Florence at two, Seth Russell at three, Bryce Petty at four, and Charlie Brewer at five, certainly with the potential to move up by the end of his career. Got a lot of heat for it on Twitter. A lot of you gave me a really hard time, mostly for putting Bryce Petty at four. And I've got to confess that sitting here for the past week, hearing all that, seeing all that, You're right, it feels like just wrong, right? It feels wrong to put Bryce Petty at four. I might, if I had to redo the list, put him up at three right above Seth Russell. 
but I can't put him above Nick Florence. Just can't do it. Nick Florence is so underrated by Baylor fans. I saw that more and more on Twitter this week. Nick Florence is so underappreciated. I don't think Baylor fans recognize just how talented and good he was. I mean, he put up the best single season a Baylor quarterback has ever put up to date. Look at the numbers. He did. He has the single season record for passing yards. He rushed for over 500 yards, which was better than Petty by a long shot and almost as good as Robert Griffin at his best. I have one friend, and if you don't know this guy, you need to know him. His name's Drew Mills. He's on Twitter infamously at HCMills237. And he's been itching to get on this podcast for a long time. One of my best friends from college, one of the highly opinionated, highly funny guys on Baylor Twitter. And so I invited him to come on for just a few minutes and argue with me about my quarterback rankings, particularly why he has Bryce Petty above Nick Florence. And I fired back of why I keep Nick over Bryce, even if by a little bit, I got to put Nick above Bryce. So here's a little bit of that conversation. And then I will move into this week's position rankings. Here's myself and Drew Mills. Okay. So, you know, I regularly have people on the podcast that disagree with me about something. If you don't know Drew Mills, uh, Drew Mills is one of my great friends, best friends from Baylor. We regularly disagree on a lot of things, mostly for fun and in jest. And he took real issue with my quarterback list from last week. And so I invited him on to present his argument. And we're going to go back and forth a little bit. Um, so for starters, how about you lay out your list? And by the way, the list that Drew came up with is the same rebuttal list that I got from most people. So you're not out of your gourd to present this list, but why don't you share your list and give me a brief rationale as to why? Yes. Well, usually I don't say this, but uh, this time there is strength in numbers for this argument. So my list, as is known by some of our uh, fellow compatriots, is number one, you have to go with the man, Robert Griffin III. Uh, Number two, you have to go with the Twice Big 12 champion, Bryce Petty, the illustrious Bryce Petty. Third, you have to go with a man uh, who did very well in our program, uh, despite lacking some talent and some coaching while he was here, with my man Seth Russell. Then you have to go down to another great man who did very well. Your favorite, I do believe. You're probably correct. The short man, the bearded man, y'all could probably pass his twins at this point, Nick Florence. Uh, and then coming in at fifth, who did I have? I'm I'm struggling to remember. You, you had Chuck fifth. Pardon? You had Chuck fifth. Oh, yes. Chuck Brewer. He's got a lot of potential and he's done great things for us so far, uh, especially when you consider his lack of protection uh, to date. Uh, and I think that when it's all said and done, he could move up, but he is uh, bare minimum fifth. So, and and so we mostly, what's funny about these, these lists is I think... Every Baylor fan that I've talked to agrees on the five. It's those five. You can't justify at this point putting Stidham in there. You can't justify putting Zach Smith in there. It's those five. And I think the primary disagreement, and it's not just between our list, it's between everybody's list, is where do you put Nick Florence? That's what it comes down to. And so 
I think the bulk of this argument between you and I is I actually had Petty fourth and I took a lot of heat for that and I get it. And I think if I did move Petty up, it would be still be the third. And I and I understand why people put him second because you have to take championships into consideration. So, But before I roast you and give you the reasons why Nick Florence was a better Baylor quarterback than Bryce Petty, uh, by a hair, by a nose, but he was, why don't you tell me why you would put Nick fourth underneath both Bryce and Seth Russell? Yes. Uh, so Nick, I love him. He's a He was a great quarterback for us. Could have gone pro, would probably be that by now, but definitely could have gone pro. I think if you look at the talent around each of the five men in there, Nick is at minimum second best when it comes to talent around him. I think uh, he had the second best receiver of all those receivers listed. You've got Kendall Wright, not as Nick's quarterback, but Robert had Kendall. Uh, you've got Denzel Mims with Chuck. You've got Corey Coleman with Petty. But Terrence Williams is most definitely that second guy. Along with that, you have Lanier Sampson. You have most definitely the best running back court with like Seastrunk and um, Glasgow Martin in there. I would say you're gonna you're gonna bulk at this. I would say he had the best offensive line of those five. I I think okay. So to fire back at you, and by the way, you still haven't told me why he's below Bryce Petty and Seth Russell. You still have not told me that. But but to fire back on you on the talent, I think most Baylor fans, and I haven't put out my wide receiver list yet, so I won't tip my hand. I think most Baylor fans would rank Terrence Williams third behind K-Dub and Coco. He certainly, I think, had the most dynamic running back playing with him. And Lake gets a lot of credit for success that season. Okay, But I think Bryce Petty had far more weapons at his disposal. Antoine Goodley in his prime. He had Corey Coleman, and he had Shock Linwood. By the way, all-time school-leading rusher, Shock Linwood. Line play, I might give it to Nick. They both had great lines. Petty, and I, I, I would dare you to deny this, Petty had a far better defensive unit helping him win games on the other side of the ball than Nick Florence had. As, as much as I like disagreeing with you, you're correct there. Yes. So... That being established, you still haven't, and I'll let you if you want in a minute. You still haven't told me why Petty is worse than Seth Russell and Bryce Petty. Let me just give you let me let me just give you the numbers. I pulled up the numbers because I'll be honest. Nick Florence is just personally because of who he is and how he plays, probably my favorite Baylor quarterback we've had. That's probably true. So I said, well, let me look at the numbers and make sure this is not my gut and that this is uh, statistical. Nick Florence, in his one year as a starter, had 4,309 yards passing. Bryce Petty's best season was 4,200, and his senior year was 3,800. Nick Florence rushed for 568 yards and 10 touchdowns. Bryce Petty's best season rushing was 209 yards. And his credit, 14 touchdowns, but that's easy when all you can run is quarterback sneaks. Nick Florence threw for, let me find the number, 33 touchdowns, while Bryce Petty threw for 32 and then 29. So that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty comparable. 
Now, let, let me bring in my rebuttal to that. Yes, part, please. Part of that was out of necessity. You just said he had the best running back of all of them. He did. And the best offensive line. He did. But we're, we, we were often playing from behind because right. of our defense. That's So what correct. are you going to do when you're playing from behind? How does that explain all of his rushing yards, too? Well, when you're getting pressured, you got to run a lot. You just Bryce said he had Pe- the best Bryce offensive Petty, line. Bryce Petty was able to get that ball out a lot faster than Nick Florence. Was he not? Was that because he had better receivers? No, that was because he had a much quicker release, and he stood taller in the pocket and was able to throw over on those quick slants. Okay, so I'll give you that Bryce Petty is a bigger, stronger athlete than Nick Florence. He, he wasn't wrapped up in butter like Florence was, though. Wrapped up in butter? What do you mean? He was a slippery little dude going through there. That's to his credit. I know it is. Now you've got me off my wagon what I was saying. Okay, well, get back on what you were saying. Give me a good reason why Bryce Petty. Nick Nick had a lion's share of what had to be put on him. If Bryce Petty was in that situation, I think he would have padded his stat line just a little bit more. If you think back, what is Bryce Petty's most iconic game? Other than his trip versus OSU, which is a bad kind of iconic. But you look at 61-58 versus TCU. So you look at that game. And people think, wow, Bryce Petty did really great. He threw a couple of those touchdowns that we had there. But you look at the total yardage on those drives that we had, those last three drives, most of that was on the back of our running game. We ran, to start right. that off, we ran that entire drive to get into the end zone. Right. If that was Nick Florence's team, we wouldn't have run. We would have been down five touchdowns, and we would have had to have Nick throw the ball to Terrence Williams 20 times in the last five minutes. That's fine. I still fail to see how that makes Bryce Petty a better quarterback than Nick Florence. The stats are not the final say on what makes a better quarterback. Who's yes. A be- who's a better quarterback, Philip Rivers or Tony Romo? Tony Romo. Stats don't say that. Yes, they do. Tony Romo has the highest passer rating in the fourth quarter in NFL history. That's one pretty, not quite obscure, but pretty shallow stat when you look at everything. When you look at total pass, <laughs> the stats you were using, total passing yards, total passing touchdowns, heck, maybe even rushing, I don't even know. Uh, you look at Phillip Rivers, he's got better stats than Romo. I love Romo. I'm a big Romo fan. I think he's one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history. But Phillip Rivers, by what we are looking at when we compare Petty and Florence, Phillip Rivers is a better quarterback. Neither had any championships, so that doesn't even get to factor in. But with Bryce Petty, you got two championships. Two Big 12 okay, championships. Okay, so wait, time out, time out, time out. You just said stats don't make the better quarterback. Phillip Rivers has better stats, so Phillip Rivers is the better quarterback. I'm not saying That's that. That's what you just said. I'm saying by your stats, he's the better quarterback. I estimate Romo is a better quarterback. Oh, okay. So that's what I'm bringing in there. So that's, it comes down to, you're going to love this little twist. If we're going to say that uh, this nebulous idea of the it factor exists, Bryce Petty had it. Wait, wait, wait. Bryce Petty had it. Why did he lose two bowl games? What did Nick Florence do when the lights turned on? I'm going to tell you, well, Nick only had one opportunity, uh, but... Want to know. We're, we're going to talk about... Uh, the teams they faced, the UCLA team that Nick beat, the UCLA, don't you lean into that microphone, Scotty, that UCLA team that Nick demolished, or rather our run game demolished, 
was missing two or three starters on that defensive line and one of their linebackers. So if you look at that, we ran how many yards? 400 yards versus UCLA that year. Nick had 11 passes. Nick didn't win that game. The lack of a defense on UCLA won that game. You still haven't explained to me why Bryce Petty lost to two inferior teams in the big ball games. Uh, I would call that on play calling. I think you would agree with me there, especially versus Michigan State. We got cocky, we got up, and we kind of sat on it, and we regretted it when it came down to our defense to make those final stops. He played real well against Central Florida, too. Central Florida is an anomaly in the history of college football. I don't understand a dang thing they did. I don't think you do either, and any feigning of that is probably uh, just talking out of your mouth. <laughs> well, okay, so we don't have a ton of time left because I'm I'm squeezing you in with John Morris this week, so... Man, you have not convinced me, man. I was ready for you to sell me on, and I and I listen. I, I'm gonna get hate mail on Twitter. I already have because I I have I've had I had a couple of insane people trying to put Bryce Petty over Robert Griffin. I I understand, and I like Bryce Petty. If you're one of those people that just puts championships as the ultimate goal, you're gonna put Bryce Petty. But I don't I don't think that's the definition of a great quarterback. Joe Flacco is not a better all time quarterback than Tony Romo or Philip Rivers. I agree. Uh, if we go back to that. So to me, you know, Nick put up much better numbers. You make a valid point that a lot of it was out of necessity, but I don't think that takes anything away from him. Nick put up better numbers player. than Robert Griffin. Yes, he did. And I think that's to his credit. That's part of why he's number two and, and on my list. And, and frankly, I trusted Nick in tight games when it mattered more than Bryce. Even though You're talking to the man that won 61-58. And lost to Oklahoma State when we were number three. And lost to Michigan State when we were ranked above them. And lost to Central Florida when we were number three in the nation, man. And I'm not and I'm not pinning those losses on losses on Bryce. But if if you're only gonna look at record and wins and championships, Bryce Petty played on a much better all around team than Nick Florence did. They would both tell you that. I agree. Um, the other thing that I haven't yet brought up, but I texted you about is they had an outright competition in 2012, which Nick Florence won soundly. And yes. that's not exactly fair because, sure, Bryce Petty got a year older, a year better, and then was a great starter. But to say that Bryce Petty is just heads and shoulders above Nick, when the numbers don't say that, when the eye test for me doesn't say it. How many interceptions did Nick Florence throw in his starting year? He threw 13. That's a lot of interceptions right there. It's not that bad. 30, 33 to 13, I'll take that. I'll take it too. How many petty throw? Seven. That's five. That's a, that's, five's a lot of difference there. Hey, hey, and, and you know what? All five of those came in Nick Florence's worst game of his career. So if we're going to ignore Michigan State and, and Central Florida for Bryce Petty, we can ignore TCU for Nick Florence. How about that? Give me your final word. Yeah, My final sure. word is that it is definitely a close race. Most definitely. If we're only, we're not talking about the five, we're talking about Nick versus Petty. It's neck and neck, it's close. But honestly, the reason I follow college football is so I can talk trash to other teams. It's not so that I can be proud of my guys, though I am proud of them, extremely proud of them, especially the past couple of years. It's so that I can walk up to my best friend Ben, I can walk up to my buddy Bo, and I can say, hey, you know what? Baylor kicked your butt this year, and you're gonna have to live with that for 365 days. And I could do that more under Bryce Petty than I could under Nick Florence. 
All right. And so I guess for, for my final closing argument, I would say to do more with less is always impressive. I'm more impressed with the kid who came out of poverty to be a millionaire than Donald Trump who was handed a million dollars, right? I would say that numbers do matter. And when you selflessly give up your second season to be the starter, to play a half, I give you a lot of credit. And then you come out and have statistically the best year that a Baylor quarterback has ever had. Give you a lot of credit for that. Give you a lot of credit for beating a much higher ranked team in a bowl game. And if you watch those two play, and we should do this next time you're in town. We should sit down and watch a Petty game. You can pick the Petty game. I'll pick the Florence game. Oh, I've got my game in mind. I have that one in mind too. Watch them both play. And the poise and the fearlessness and the ruthlessness and the guts that Nick Florence displayed on every single play. Taking hits. Man, I I cannot put anybody other than Robert Griffin III over Nick Florence. Thanks so much to Drew for hopping on here for a little bit to argue with me. I had a lot of fun with that. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And frankly, I'm still not convinced. I still have to put Nick Florence above Bryce Petty, even if by just a little bit, gotta do it. So now we move into this week's rankings, and I decided to do linebackers. I'm, I'm really excited about this one. This was actually a really hard one to rank. There, We've had some really good linebackers since 2010. Like You'd be surprised if you look at just the list. It's a pretty good list. And so I ranked the linebackers one through five of this decade. I'd like to hear your feedback. I honestly, this is one of the list that I feel really comfortable in, as in I can't move anybody up or down right now, and I wouldn't take any arguments. The only argument I might take is you could flip one and two on this list. They're pretty interchangeable, but I think you'll agree with me, and I'd like to hear more of your feedback on Twitter afterward. But here we go. The top five linebackers since 2010 for Baylor football. First, I got to start with an honorable mention. Trayvon Blanchard. Listen, this guy was in that hybrid bear position. So I don't, I always struggle with whether to put that as a linebacker or a safety, but he was intense and I think could have played a true outside linebacker just as good as he played the safety or the bear position. Trayvon Blanchard was a monster. He made tackles in the backfield regularly. He was ruthless coming off the edge. He was exceptional in pass coverage, especially because he usually got to cover guys in the slot or out of the backfield. Got a lot of lot of love for Trayvon Blanchard. I'm sad he left Baylor uh, when he had to in the way that he did. But during his time as the starter at that bear position, he was second to none. A lot of respect, a lot of shout out, a lot of props. Didn't make the list, but I had to mention him. So at number five, I've got Clay Johnston. Now listen, Baylor's linebackers this season have taken a lot of heat and with good reason, but Clay Johnston continues to be one of the best ones to ever play the position at Baylor. He's physical. He's aggressive. He hits people, man. I mean, you watch Clay Johnston once or twice a game. He just lays into somebody. Really, really puts a lot of force behind his hits. I'm shocked he hasn't knocked anybody out for a career yet. I mean, the guy just levels people and does it legally. So that's even more impressive with the rules the way they are today. He played really well against Texas this past Saturday. He played outstanding in his return to the field against UT San Antonio. The biggest knock I have on Clay Johnson is he's been injury prone. 
Sometimes that's because a guy is just injury prone and sometimes it's just bad luck. To his credit, he got hurt, or at least it looked like it, twice against Texas and kept playing. So I have no doubt he's tough. I have no doubt he's a beast. He's been a great linebacker for this team, but he stands right now at number five. At number four, Eddie Lackey. A lot of people love Eddie Lackey, and honestly, I think a lot of people overrate Eddie Lackey a little bit, but he is certainly a top five linebacker of this decade. Just played in great tandem to Bryce Hager, made some huge interceptions in a couple of games. I'm sure you remember, returned a couple for touchdowns. He was a really good linebacker in the box, made a lot of big stops, made the right tackles. He was deceptively quick. Like, he wasn't that fast, he wasn't, but he was deceptively fast. Like, he'd catch up to guys a lot faster than I expected him to. Eddie Lackey's a great one. Nothing but fond memories for number five. I've got him, though, at number four. At number three, I got to go with my guy, a guest earlier this season on Please Bear With Me, Elliot Coffey. Elliot Coffey is another guy that I just feel is underappreciated by Baylor fans for just how good he was. He was the big leader of that defense in 2011, and I know that 2011 defense was not great, but Elliot was. Elliot was probably, as far as speed, the fastest linebacker on this list, able to catch up on plays really quick. Always was in the right place. He was a smart linebacker. He's incredibly intelligent. You can tell that now as he does the Baylor Fan Forum after the football games on the radio. He does the Baylor Game Day Show. He is on Our Daily Bears podcast just about every week, and he did come on this podcast once earlier this season, and he's just brilliant. He is an incredibly talented football player. He, I think, was a huge pivotal leader on that 2011 team that broke the 10-win barrier, got RG3 as Heisman. He was great in the Alamo Bowl that year. Nothing but love for Elliott Coffey. He stands at number three. And number two, Taylor Young is such, number one, he's such a good story. Is he not? Five foot nine, playing middle linebacker and outside linebacker at times in the Big 12 and doing it very well, an all-conference football player. I cannot say enough good things about Taylor Young, and you heard me say this last year, and I think I said it on the podcast and wrote an article. Baylor fans have no idea how crucial Taylor Young has been in this transition from the Art Bryles era to the Matt Rule era. Crucial. Crucial. I really think Taylor Young, if Taylor Young had not bought in to Matt Rule as a coach, had not bought into Phil Snow, had not bought into this this new system of and this new way of doing things, I do not think it would be going nearly as well as it is right now. There's no way we would have four wins right now in 2018 if Taylor Young had not been so clutch and so good in 2017 and so good about leading this team to accept Matt Rule and his vision. But furthermore, I don't mean to talk all about Taylor Young's leadership off the field. I mean, on the field, Taylor Young, he was incredible, always racking up tackles, making big sacks. Five foot nine, y'all. Taylor Young's a monster. Taylor Young will forever be remembered as one of the Baylor greats. I've got him on my Mount Rushmore of Baylor linebackers right next to Mike Singletary, James Francis, And my number one linebacker of this decade, Bryce Hager. Bryce Hager is everything you want in a college linebacker. He's fun. He's ferocious. He made huge hits. He had huge interceptions. He was a leader. He was tough. 
He has been an incredibly successful player in the NFL as far as being like a spell linebacker and a special teams player for the Los Angeles Rams, who, by the way, are probably going to win the Super Bowl this year. I hope they do. I hope Bryce Hager gets a Super Bowl ring. There's not enough I can say about Bryce Hager's play. It speaks for itself. He was the leader of Baylor's defense from 2012, and then through both of those Big 12 titles, he was the best player on that defense. He deserves a lot of credit for those Big 12 championships. He deserves a lot of credit for just being a funny guy and a good guy and a great football player. Like I said, I wouldn't get mad at you if you rated Taylor Young 1 and Bryce Hager 2, but to me, Bryce Hager is the best linebacker we've had at Baylor, maybe since Mike Singletary, and certainly the best we'll have for a long time. Although I will say, if Joe Pavelic had played in 2010 and had not graduated shortly before this decade started, it'd be really hard to keep him out of that number one spot. I mean, he's right up there with Hager, right up there with Taylor Young as well. Really love Joe Paul, but yeah, Bryce Hager, definitely number one. That's all the time I've got for this week. In fact, I went a little long. Thanks for sticking with us. Now, this weekend, I am flying out to Iceland uh, for fall break. My brother is a great guy and is taking me out there on a little trip. And so we're going to be hiking in Iceland for a few days. So I have already recorded next week's episode. So that will be dropping on Tuesday, and it has an interview with a former West Virginia player who is probably my favorite opposing player we have ever faced, ever. I mean, this guy's awesome. I think I had the most fun I've ever had in an interview when we talked earlier this week, and so you're going to love it. So on Tuesday, that episode will drop. We will talk with the former West Virginia player, and then we will preview that West Virginia game. Please bear with me. The show will probably happen on Wednesday night, but it will happen later than usual. It will probably need to be at 9 p.m. Central. I will keep you updated on that, but please bear with me. The show on Periscope and Facebook Live will most likely happen at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time on Wednesday night because I am a youth pastor and we don't wrap up at church until 8 at the earliest. So look for us at 9 o'clock on that. So that's how the rest of this week's going to go. I'm glad you listened to this episode. We've got another one coming on Tuesday or so. And then please bear with me the show on Wednesday. Big game against West Virginia in Morgantown on Thursday. We will have more on that in the next episode. But for now, thanks for listening to this one. My name's Scotty Swingler. It's a pleasure to do this every week. I appreciate you guys for listening. Like us on Facebook and Twitter. Share us with your friends. Make sure to subscribe, and I'll talk to you next time. This is Please Bear With Me. Please Bear With Me is brought to you by Bears Illustrated over at Baylor 247. Thanks to my man Tim Watkins over there. Thanks to Iron Kids for all the music you heard on today's podcast. Go check them out, Iron Kids, on SoundCloud. I've been Scotty Swingler, and this is Please Bear With Me. Please Bear With Me.